The following is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. You're talking about how my whole life I've geared everything to tear down Hulkamania. I've done everything I can to destroy you. You know something, Hogan? You are 100% correct. I will not sleep. I will not eat. I will not rest until I am the manager of the heavyweight champion of the world. And you're out of professional wrestling. Now, I don't care if you're sweeping streets, if you're cleaning subways, or if you're in a field someplace, or institutionalized for the rest of your life for the terminally bewildered because your mind is gone. I don't care about you. I can't stand you. Matter of fact, I hate you. Those are pretty strong words. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. This is actually episode 9, if you keep track of episode numbers. And this is going to be another episode where we're going to have a little bit of a heavier heart uh, doing this show, because uh, it happens from time to time. There's that celebrity death where you kind of have to stop and gather yourself for a few minutes and this is one of those times. The, the wrestling world lost a true all-time great. This episode of Classic Wrestling Memories is dedicated to the career and memory of the late, great Bobby the Brain Heenan. And let me introduce my co-host, as usual, for Classic Wrestling Memories, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Um, no true words have been spoken. Um, Bobby Heenan, without argument, is the greatest wrestling manager of all time. I've said that, and I know I'm not the only person in and out of the wrestling business that has said that. Uh, anytime I get an argument from a fan, I will often say, well, who do you think is the greatest if it isn't Bobby Heenan? And they will you know, mention people like Jim Cornette, Paul Heyman, J.J. Dillon. The funny thing is all three of those men have said multiple times in public forums, no, Bobby the Brain Heenan was the greatest manager of all time. I think that's... Um, that kind of closes the case on that one, I think. Um, <laughs> but outside of his managing, his announcing, he was a lifelong fan of wrestling. Uh, he was a great wrestler earlier in his career. We'll talk about all that. Uh, I, I think that Bobby the Brain Heenan may have been one of the most complete on-air personas that this business has ever or will ever see. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go along tonight. Yeah, I think he did really everything except promote really you know he he obviously yeah. he wrestled he he was actually a very good in-ring wrestler um mm -hmm. you know most famous for his managing but he did commentary i know he helped people backstage you know as, as far as as far as getting better so i know he kind of helped mentor some people i i wouldn't be surprised at all if some of the big money programs that he was involved in if he didn't have a hand in booking those like the stuff with with andre I'm pretty sure, being a top guy, that he had um, input and say, like all top guys do in their programs. I don't know of him ever actually, quote-unquote, having the book. If you harken back to, I believe it was episode five, where we talked, you know, the art of booking, or episode six. You, have to, you keep track of that, I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he never had that job, like a Dusty Rhodes or a Gary Hart or, you know, others that we mentioned, Eddie Graham. But uh, yeah, I think his. I think that he had some say in his creativity, uh, uh, and that was 
you know, that's where wrestling has changed a lot. I think um, top guys were top guys because they were given the ball by a booker and a promoter and told to run with it. And they were allowed a lot more leeway in their creativity. And Bobby Heenan was a master at that. And I often wonder, guys of Bobby Heenan's ilk, could they make it in today's current environment? I don't know if they could um, because you can't stifle that. That's that's what made Bobby Heenan so great was that creativity, that quick wit, that just that timing that only comes partially from just natural ability and partially from just going out and doing it and learning it. You know, that's the things you cannot teach in a wrestling school. You only learn that. And as we talk, you'll see he had a very long career to to master his craft, and he truly was a master at his craft. He would have been 73 years old this November. and Because at least in this case, when we're talking about a career, we're not talking about a career that was cut short. Uh, we're not talking no. about somebody who, who died too soon. I mean, I guess you could say that the cancer technically could have probably – he probably could have continued – making appearances in a management capacity if he hadn't gotten the cancer. But he'd, he'd been battling throat cancer for 15 years, but according to Pro Wrestling Sheets, his family was with him when he passed. And in that regard, if there's a good way to go, you know, that's probably it. Yeah, that, that's, that's very true. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, a lot of people don't get that luxury. Um, so, you know, Bobby's up there, and he's in that great battle royal in the sky now, and he's probably sitting on commentary with gorilla right now. And so, you know, mm -hmm. might be a cool place to sit in on, but I'm kind of happy where I am right now too. You know <laughs> yeah. I mean? yeah. Back to his career, you know, his gimmick was always that he came from Beverly Hills or at least claimed to be from Beverly Hills. But right. the truth is he, he was a Midwesterner. He, he was born in Chicago. So this is kind of a double whammy for me. My, my understanding is he grew up about a mile or two from Wrigley field, loved mm -hmm. baseball, uh, was raised in Indianapolis uh, and as a teenager, he worked as a stagehand at the Indianapolis Coliseum. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's really where he truly got introduced to wrestling from a, I don't know if production's the word, but seeing how things are set up. And, on, the, on the other side of the guardrail, so to speak. Right, right. I, I'm uh -huh. sure he may have watched wrestling when uh, mm -hmm. when he was younger, but that, that was when he really got, got to see wrestling put on as a show. Keenan... Uh, from my understanding, uh, partly from his own interviews and partly from stories I've heard from guys that knew Bobby, uh, I was only blessed to meet Bobby one time, and it was as a fan, not as someone in the business. His father, I don't know if his father died or, or had left, but he was the only man in his home as a, as a young boy all through his teenage years, and he lived with his mother, his grandmother, and I want to say his aunt or his great-aunt, and... Uh, he, one of them took him to wrestling at a young age and he was hooked, but that's his own words. He was hooked. Uh, he loved the, I think Bobby and it should not shock anybody, uh, based on his sense of humor. Uh, he was kind of a fan of the old style of, of comedy, you know, and, and maybe even a little bit going back before his time to vaudeville. It's exactly you know, I think, what I was going to say. Like, a, like he seems like he right. would have been perfect in like a vaudeville impromptu thing. Right. But he kind of had that, 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 you know, like a Don Rickles kind of vibe to him, a little bit of an insult comic, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I think he saw that in wrestling, and he was hooked. Like I said, it was his own words. He used those words when he was inducted into the WWE, uh, at the time, F Hall of Fame. Uh, he was hooked. And he, like a lot of guys in this business, um, myself included, 
we just grew up always wanting to be in it and we stuck around and we persisted and we bothered guys and eventually they smartened us up, <laughs> you know, and that's my understanding how Bobby got not dissimilar from other famous managers like a Paul Heyman, like a Jim Cornette, you know, um, when you're not born, when you're not born into a, when you're not a second or third generation guy in this business, it's not the easiest business to break into even today where it's a dime a dozen. Uh, to just go to a quote-unquote wrestling school and pay your money, those guys aren't wrestlers. I'm sorry, no offense to you guys out there, you're not wrestlers. You are not my brother. You did not pay your dues. You were not trained properly. Bobby paid his dues. He was he was trained properly. He broke in at a time when it was the analogy that you hear Jim Ross use all the time. It was basically the mafia, you know, mm-hmm. uh, without without guns. And so, uh, but he was 16. Uh, my understanding when he broke in and he was like I said in in, in, Indianapolis, in Indianapolis for the WWA, which was Dick the Bruiser's promotion, where he was the biggest star there. And I mean, he the 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 Dick the Bruiser is is a legendary in Indianapolis for old time wrestling fans to say a Lawler in Memphis or a Flair in Charlotte or a, a Von Erich in Dallas. That was how you know. And Bobby started with him. Crusher in Milwaukee. Yeah, Crusher in Milwaukee, exactly, exactly. Vern in Minneapolis, they're just certain guys that are iconic to certain towns, you know. Well, Dick the Bruiser was that in Indianapolis, and um, but he started like a lot of guys. He was just a ring boy, selling Cokes, getting the guys in the back Cokes or a sandwich, a gopher, basically, you know, carrying ring jackets back, and and that, that's how he got started. It's a very humble beginning for a guy who became a legend, but a lot of the guys that become legends, that is their humble beginning, and um when he finally, you know, got to a point where I'm not quite sure how he got smartened up as far as bumping and whatnot, but he he's told the story. The first payoff was eight dollars. He was like 17 or 18 years old, and and but he was he was hooked and he loved it and he didn't want to stop. and And why do you keep coming back? His own words: I had four mouths to feed, mine and my aunt and my mom and my grandmother. So I kept going. It was his job. Bobby was one of those guys. And you don't see it as much now that he didn't know anything but professional wrestling. That is the only way that man ever earned money in his adult life. That is amazing. You know, never had a second job waiting tables or that I know of or I've ever heard of. So kudos to him for that, too. That's amazing to me. But it was there that he did become an in-ring performer. And he originally, before he was the brain, he was pretty boy Bobby Heaton. Um what has your research told you about those eras, about that time? Well, you can find a couple promos uh, from that era. And we're talking, talking, what, late 60s here, probably? More, more like early early to mid-70s. Mm-hmm. But, but, I mean, he may have been pretty boy in the 60s, but uh, I, I've mm-hmm. seen stuff where, where it's clearly the 70s. You can you can tell just by the, the hair and such. Mm-hmm. I, I just find it kind of funny. I I, uh, I think a lot of the modern fans, like if, if you started watching wrestling in the 90s, um, mm-hmm. they may not know that he was actually, he actually trained for an in-ring career and was actually right. a very good wrestler. He, he didn't right. switch to primarily managing until a few years into his career, but I think he got it early on, uh, that it's okay to be hated, uh, at mm-hmm. least on camera, because if the people hate you, they'll pay money to see you get beaten up. And I think he knew with, with, I'm sure even as a teenager, he had a gift of gab, and he's right. able to put two and two together. But um, as as far as the Pretty Boy stuff, um, th- uh, my understanding is when that really started hitting with WWE, uh, I mean, he, he managed people before that, like uh, 
Angelo Poffo and such, but what mm. really was the spark to get things rolling was they had Cowboy Jack Lanza, and they turned Jack Lanza heel, and he became Black Jack Lanza, and the decision was made to, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm saying something wrong here, but right. you know, the decision was made to pair him with Bobby, and that was the start of a very successful run. Black Jack Lanza with Pretty Boy Bobby Heenan, right. that's really where they started selling tickets. Right. If you go back a little before that, uh, and I, I'm, I'm trying to, some of this is coming from his contemporaries at uh, time, which are also no longer with us, guys like Johnny Weaver and uh, guys like that I would know from this area, you know, uh, so Bill White, who is still with us, guys that were, you know, territorial stars in the 60s and 70s that helped me out when I started. Bobby was an awesome in-ring performer. He took these great, you know, over-the-top rope bumps and he was a bumping machine, and they told him to slow down because he wasn't the biggest guy. You know, Bobby's 5'9", five, 5'10", five, maybe like 215, 220 at the height of his, of his in-ring career, if that. Um, but he would take these crazy bumps, like you said, to get egg on his face because he understood that that was his job as a heel. And he suffered a, a neck early injury pretty early on, uh, and it slowed him down. I don't think it, it finally put a kibosh on the physicality till much later. And we'll discuss that when he had transitioned into the, you know, managing slash announce announcing stuff he was doing. But, um, that was part of why the decision was made to make him a manager because he had the gift for gab, like you said, and he was already over and established as a heel. I mean, he did not slow him down. We'll talk about later how he was a guy who could get in the ring with his ward or his man and tag with them, and there would be no level of, of drop-off in the in-ring performance because Bobby was that good. And there aren't many managers that you can say that about. I mean, Paul Jones was not a – was he was past his prime by the time he started managing. Paul was a great wrestler in the 70s here in the Carolinas, but I didn't see him getting in the ring with those guys in the 80s. Uh, you know, Dylan. Dylan was probably the only other guy that could do that. And then, of course, like guys like Heyman and Cornette, they had never really, you know – but crybaby George Cannon was past his prime when he started managing. So there are a lot of the managers you think of, they couldn't do that. Bobby was a rarity in that he could do that. But you're right. To go back to what your original thought about, about Black Jack Lanza, Jack Lanza, turning, you know, turning him heel and putting him with, with Bobby, that was money. You know, And once again, we're, we're talking about the WWA where, where Dick the Bruiser is your top baby face, which is so, so funny to me because not to, not to – turn away from Bobby to hear current current modern fans talk about, well, there's never, there's never been a, 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 a tough guy, baby face, top baby face before, like a Brock Lesnar or even like an undertaker, uh, Dick, the bruiser, <laughs> Dick, the bruiser was, he was not a white meat baby face by any stretch of the imagination. There's nothing about that. It screamed. This is a good guy. I should cheer for him. But those people in Indianapolis loved him and they thought he was the baddest man on the planet. And when you when you're booking and you have a, a guy like that, you need a guy like Jack Lanza to be able to be believable in the ring and be a threat to a guy like that. And 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 Jack, no disrespect to Jack Lanza, I have a lot of respect for Jack Lanza. Jack was not good on the mic, so you know, pair him with the guy who can run his mouth and and and, and Bruiser was 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 Bruiser was a character babyface even in his ability to cut promos. He. Bruiser was not a great promo, but it was a, it was a great promo for his character. Do you follow what I'm saying with that? Yeah, yeah, kind of like uh, 
I'm trying to Warriors. come up with a yeah yeah Warriors a good example uh, a modern example I mean I hate giving modern examples for classic wrestling memories but you know for fans trying to learn uh, a, a mm-hmm. perfect current example might be somebody like Shinsuke Nakamura who right. can only say so much in English but he says just enough that it's perfect and that's probably the only way you're going to ever hear Shinsuke Nakamura compared to Dick the Bruiser but <laughs> right. I'm right. trying. Right. <laughs> Both great guys, both great in-ring, but very different in-ring styles. Uh, another great example, more modern uh, for people to get their mind, the original Bo Dallas, where mm-hmm. it was it was a great promo, but it wasn't a Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes money promo, but it fit the character, you know? You just have to believe that kind of thing, you know? So right. it's a, Sometimes the promo, we were talking in, in format before we start recording, folks, about how New Jack cut great promos because – the obscenity-laden, crazy promos that Jack would cut in ECW and Smoky Mountain, they fit the way he wrestled and the way he looked. There's another great, more modern example, you know? Um, it just and, and so you've got this very blue-collar guy in Dick the Bruiser with this very unique promo style for his character, and then you've got the wit and the sarcasm of Bobby Heenan. You can see how that's gold, you know? Right, and then he's got the guy behind him, like Jack Lanza, who's got the size and the credibility in these fans' eyes because they've seen him be a babyface and now he's a heel to physically challenge. Oh, come on, that's as they used to say back in the day. That was licensed to print money. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then you know, I don't know how much later it was, but then they brought in uh, a man you you knew quite well, Blackjack Mulligan, and yeah, Bob. That, that's that's when the Blackjacks were formed, right? Right, and it wasn't long after that I think they left. I'm not sure if that happened in Indianapolis or if Bobby and, and Jack had moved on to Minneapolis for Vern, but they really made their name for for Vern in Minneapolis in the, in the AWA. And I think that's probably where a lot of people, at least the, the diehard wrestling fans that, of the 70s, which is you know long before the internet, even before tape trading because VCRs didn't exist, but they followed the wrestling magazines. That's probably where they started to get to, to, the guys that weren't in Minneapolis or in Indianapolis got to hear of Bobby Heenan, you know, because they'd see him with the blackjacks uh, mm-hmm. in, you know, in the magazines. And it was a very stark visual, too. You have these two huge men, both 6'5 plus, both 300 pound plus or close to it, you know, in the black leather vest and the black cowboy hats with the big black handlebar mustaches and this little short blonde haired guy in the sequined outfit, you know, in between them. Very, very great visual, you know. It looks like the typical Mutt and Jeff. The little guy is going to run his mouth and have the big guys back him up, right? <laughs> right. But the thing of it was, like I said earlier, you saw it some here. It happened more later, and we'll get to that because it was his next really big program in the w- in AWA. If they wanted to do a six-man, they could because Bobby could get in the ring and go. And, and he could be the guy that could could sell, could just could generate heat by you didn't want to you didn't want to kill Jack or Bob. Sorry, uh, Black, uh, uh, Blackjack Mulligan. Sorry, Bob Wyndham to me. I'm sorry, folks, for getting familiar there. But you want to keep them strong. Bobby was the guy who could get in there and bump around, you know, like a ping pong ball and get the baby faces over. And then, you know, one dastardly deed by one of the Blackjacks and he tags out and then, you know, he's on the he's on the apron selling. But you get the point, you know. It, it was just, it, it worked so well. And when he wasn't doing that, he was so over as a heel because of his mouth and his quick wit 
Bobby didn't have to say a whole lot. Bobby was one of those managers that could literally just turn to the crowd and give them a look, and they would they would rise up out of their seats wanting to throw stuff at him. Uh, you know, and that is definitely an art form that doesn't exist anymore. And Bobby was a master at that. Uh, even the most over heels back in the day had to do some form of physicality to a baby face or run their mouth to get heel heat. Imagine what I'm saying here. Bobby Heenan didn't have to do either of those. He just had to give him a look and got and got a reaction out of the crowd. That's amazing when you stop and think about it. Mm-hmm. And going back to those six-man tags, it would be the, the classic example. You know how you say he'd do one mm-hmm. thing and then tag back out, but if the Blackjacks got the baby face down and they, they beat on him and you know, the baby face is down, you know, face down on the mat, then uh, then Bobby Heenan looks ta- will tag in <laughs> yeah. and give a few stomps. You know, then then he's a then he's a yeah. tough guy. <laughs> and of course, then the baby face stops selling after a while because it's the manager and he makes the comeback. And Bobby runs like a scald the dog. It always that formula, ladies and gentlemen, is is as cliched as it sounds. It always works. The reason why everybody says, "Oh, it doesn't work nowadays. Times are different." How would you know? You've never tried it. If, if 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 somebody would go back and do that on Vince's television or on Impact or on ROH, I guarantee you it would get over. Mm-hmm. People would lose their minds. But you know, wrestling off wrestling. I've said it before. Wrestling can often be its own worst enemy. We get we and I say we when I mean us. I mean the boys, the wrestlers, the promoters, the bookers. We sometimes get too too smart for our, our own good. But I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, other uh, uh, I, oh, I was gonna I was gonna tell you a story that Bob told me okay. one time about Bobby and him. They were in one of the smaller towns they ran there in Wisconsin or, or Minnesota. I can't remember. It was, it was packed, you know, as, as all the old timers say, they were swinging off the rafters. They were just packed to the house. And it was that same thing I was talking about where Bobby would give the look, you know. And he gave the look and the crowd rise, rose up. And apparently somebody, <laughs> one of the fans, Bobby didn't see him because he turned back around and one of the fans came from over, you know, back, right in the back of the head. And either Jack or Bob jumped down and, and, you know, security came in, but, um, he, he, Bobby told <laughs> security, bring him to the back, <laughs> bring him to the back. <laughs> and and so they get done with their match and, and, you know, this was a pretty good sized guy from, from, from the story that, 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 that black Jack Mulligan told me this, he was, he wasn't a, he wasn't a small fan, you know, he was a good sized fella and, Bobby's sitting there, and 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 Jack and Jack and uh, Jack and, and Wyndham are sitting behind him, and he stands up and he just starts cutting a promo on this guy. I kick your, you know, black. I can't repeat it because it's a family show, right? And then and then you know the cop said, <laughs> the cop said, "Well, you done?" And he said, "No, I'm I'm not done." And he, and he goes, "Are you going to do something about it?" And the guy went to step forward, and then Jack and Bob stood up, and then he stepped behind. Him. <laughs> and, and 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 he's but and, and and the cop was like, okay, I think this is enough. Time out. I'm taking him back. If you don't want to arrest him, I'm gonna let him go. <laughs> okay. But he said he was still cutting a promo on this fan. This Mark was just cutting a promo on him. Of course, he's standing further and further behind Jack Lanza and Bob Wyndham because he's cutting a promo. So, and, he, and don't ever come back in my locker room. You know, like, but I just thought that was hilarious. You know, it's like Bob, Bobby. Could, I mean, no, if Bobby was not a shooter. Bobby would be the first to tell you, you know, if he was here, he was not a shooter. And he was obviously he was a tough guy. Everybody in the wrestling business takes bumps is tough. I, I can attest to that. But I mean, 
not he wasn't you know he wasn't Harley Race or, or, or Ming was going to walk into a bar and start a bar fight and win you know, but he was right. real tough when he had when he had Blackjack Lanza and Blackjack Mulligan covering his back. You know? <laughs> and, uh, there, Bob told me several stories like those that were funny, like the, going off on a fan one time. It was in I think they were in, they had gone in to work for for uh, uh, Bob Geigel in Kansas City, and everybody hated going to Kansas City. They never drew, and, and I've heard all kinds of horror stories about Kansas City back in the territorial days, but <clears throat> those fans are a little farther south in the Midwest than, say, Chicago or Minneapolis, right? So there's a little bit of a, of, of, of a, a hillbilly southern flair because you're getting closer to, like, Kentucky and Tennessee <laughs> down there. And Bobby started one of those tirades again, and your <laughs> gunshot went off. Okay, gentlemen, I believe it's time to go. <laughs> Back door. So anyway, <laughs> I mean, it seems to me, the fact that the guy could have that kind of, sense of humor even in a crisis situation like that's kind of you know i think says a lot about the band but i i thought i wish bob was still with us too so he could tell the stories but those stories some of the stories he's told me i can't repeat obviously on the family podcast but bobby was fearless to say the least but he was especially fearless when he had blackjack lance and blackjack mulligan on his side <laughs> But back to uh the wwa days and we're we're winding up the talk here because we're going to get to the you know the, the stuff he's probably more classically known for, right? Uh, but other wrestlers he managed in the WWE uh, that it would be the the Valiant Brothers, Jimmy and Johnny, the Assassins, not the Jody Hamilton Assassin. These were uh, two other guys, and really? apparently he had an on-screen brother at the time, Guy Heenan, which right. I, I didn't I didn't know about this until I think that they might actually up for this. Him when he first started at one time. Because I know that he did a lot of tag team wrestling when he first started. Uh, smaller guys tended to be tag team wrestlers back then. Think Rock and Roll Express, think Midnight Express, think you know uh, the the Rockers. It was the way to take a guy who was big enough to be a wrestler, but not big enough to be a, a singles guy. Especially if you were in a territory where there wasn't a, a weight like a junior heavyweight champion, or or you know like down in Mexico they had like the middleweight and all that kind of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. um, that was just a thing back then. If you were a smaller guy, you got put in a tag team. So. You know, Bobby was really good, but didn't change the fact he could work inside the ring, you know? Yeah, right, right. Now, I don't know how much you know about this, but I believe he left WWE over a pay dispute. Uh, I've never heard that story, but it wouldn't shock me. What does JR always say? What are the two reasons guys leave leaves a comp- uh, promotion? Cash or creative. Mm-hmm. But he, um, and he was working AWA during this, and this, this is the next uh, promotion we'll talk about, the AWA, American Wrestling Association. I don't think mm-hmm. I need to tell many viewers about the awa but right. this his awa run in the early to mid 70s that's really when i think we, it was the beginning of the big years for bobby because mm-hmm. this is when he officially started adopting the name the brain and right. he, he started managing nick bockwinkle and ray stevens to tag team championships that i think he got with them when when bob and, and jack lanza went to to Vince Senior, you know, and had a so, run there. Sounds about right. But but think about that. We're talking about Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle. These are two guys who do not need somebody to talk for them. They both were great promos. But the magic they had with Bobby Heenan, that's there's some a little bit of it on the network. There's a lot on YouTube. You are doing yourself a disservice if you're listening to this podcast. And if you are, I'm assuming you want to know more about or are already a fan of older wrestling. If you have not seen it, you're not lucky it up, you're doing yourself a disservice. That's some of the best promos ever. Those three guys together, are you kidding me? Wow. It goes back to what we said earlier. You know, the conventional logic is 
if somebody can't talk, you pair them with a manager who can do the talking for them. But right. yet, like you said, uh, both Stevens and Bachwinkle could talk. Right. And in Bobby's own words, I, I remember him being interviewed with this. I can't remember if it was RF video or if it was a uh, ROH video. But Bobby m- many times got paired with guys that could talk. But Heenan, in his own words, he, he was like, if, if the wrestler he was with w- was a salad, then he was a crouton. He was just an accentuation to that salad. Like and, I said, he's the sizzle to the steak. Yeah. I say yeah, that. And, that's, that yeah, and that, that, that's how he was able to make that work. And to step back even to when he, when he managed the Blackjacks, Lanza, like I said earlier, was not a great talker. Bob Wyndham, Blackjack Mulligan, could talk, especially for a big guy. You know, That was part of the reason he was so over in Florida and the Carolinas, because he's a big guy who could talk. But, you know, who needs to talk when you got Bobby talking for you? And those were the ones where he really, really would have those six mans. And there were many times where Bachwinkle, because, you know, Bachwinkle being the AWA champion in that era, even though he wasn't at that point, you know, he kind of stepped away from the singles title and was doing the tag team thing. Bachwinkle was still in demand. He was a second generation star. He was a huge star. He was at that era. Bachwinkle was at the level of a Harley race or a Jack Briscoe for that time period. So he had a lot of bookings other places. And Vern didn't have as rough a schedule as other territories. So he would lend guys out and, you know, like talents exchanges. So Nick would be gone. Bobby would just step in and tag with Ray in the big towns for Vern and it would draw. You know, the fans knew there was not going to be a drop off if they saw Heenan. And, and sometimes Ray, Ray, Ray was, you know, God rest his soul. Ray Stevens was notorious for driving anything fast, motorcycles, cars, whatever. And he was banged up sometimes <laughs> because of car wrecks and things. And he couldn't go. So he would, he would tag with Bachwinkle. And it was, it was just great stuff. I mean, it's one, one of my favorite things that came out of that era. Once he going back to where he got to start. One of the biggest feuds that they had was the Crusher and the Bruiser. So, you know, now he's getting to work in a program with the guy who essentially broke, gave him his break in the business. You know, how great is that? Mm-hmm. And if he did leave Dick the Bruiser over money, that's the funny thing about wrestling. There's a legitimate war between Poffo's promotion and Jarrett's promotion and guys literally going to other, you know, other locker rooms wanting to start fights. And next thing you know, they, they make peace and start making money and, Lawler and, and Randy are doing the loop, making money all over the Tennessee territory. So yeah. it, that happens a lot in the wrestling business, folks. You know, and it seems like it happened here, too. Um, but I remember another one that they feuded with was the High Flyers. Uh, you know, Greg Gagne and was that Jim Brazil? It, it was Jim Brazil, yes. Right, right. And so that was one of the most famous things that we'll all remember about Bobby was the moniker Weasel. You know, which was almost to the point of ad nauseum in the WCW days where Lee Marshall would always throw those weasel comments in. And, you know, Gorilla would call him that in the WWF. But that started in the AWA during their feud with the High Flyers. And the whole thing with the weasel suit, which, of course, he it, it got over in the AWA, so he carried it on to the WWF. Bobby was the right guy to pull that off. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the weasel suit and, and the weasel matches, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first one I saw was actually with the Ultimate Warrior, but I know it went back to the AWA days. Oh yeah, yeah. Greg, he he. It was when Greg was first breaking in, and and Greg had the. I think Greg had the like we talked about when we talked about the Tennessee territory and the Goulas Jarrett split. The same thing, you know, you had going on with with George Goulas. You had going on with Greg. Some of the boys in the back were like, oh, you know, this is the kid. This is the promoter's son. And the, some of the fans were like, eh, that's the promoter's son. Um, but Greg, like we mentioned in that same episode, was much better in-ring than George Goulas ever hoped to be. You know, 
and was much better on the mic than George Gould. Um, so he was the one that introduced the weasel suit. And, and you know, the I, Bobby was showing his disdain for some punk kid, as he would call him, you know. Um, he's not going to beat me. And then he'd beat him. And, of course, you'd put him in the weasel suit. And then he even had, like, the, the claws on it. And Bobby would – that right there is – everything you need to know about how awesome Bobby, Bobby Heenan was is find any of those on the WWE Network or YouTube, whether it's the AWA ones or the WWF ones, and watch how he sells – the weasel suit when he does the spot where he wakes up and he realizes he's mm-hmm. in the weasel suit. Oh mm-hmm. my God. That is, I can never, I never get tired of watching that. Always. I mean, my sides hurt. I laugh so hard. He, you know, the, 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 the facial expression and then he falling ass over tea kettle, tripping over his tail and he can't get out of it. Oh, that's, that's good stuff, man. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's entertaining to me. That's entertaining. And once again, it's simple. It's not over the top or over sexualized. And uh, it's the kind of thing they don't do today. If they were to do that spot with the right, with a guy like a Bobby, could you imagine somebody like Miz doing that nowadays and the reaction it would get? Miz could probably pull it off. Exactly. That's why I mentioned him. And it would get a thunderous response from the crowd. But they just don't do stuff like that anymore. But anyway, once again, I digress. But my point was, that was the whole thing, was this beginning feud with Greg Gagne versus Bobby Heenan. Greg being the young punk son of promoter and Bobby playing it up. And that led to the weasel, which I think became obviously a major part of who Bobby, what fans remember Bobby for 77, 78, somewhere in there. But the AWA also was where we got the formation of the original Heenan family. So yes, yes, kids wrestling stables did exist before the 1990s. Uh, mm-hmm. But the original Heenan family, uh, just kind of for trivial purposes was Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, Blackjack Lanza, and Bobby Duncombe Sr. Right. So, and, and uh, you're talking what time period is that? 78, 79, maybe? Yeah, so, yeah somewhere around there. Because I think around this time, uh, Blackjack Mulligan may have been doing a singles career. Because I know he was like U.S. champion for a while, and he was feuding with Flair over it. He was down here in the Carolinas at that point, exactly. He had, he had broke away from the tag team and become a single star and was a huge draw here and in Florida. So there was no point in him splitting his paycheck up in Minneapolis. And as Bob would tell you, the, the weather was nicer down here and in Florida, too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not, not as bad of winters, obviously, right? My understanding is Bobby genuinely liked working for Vern in the AWA, so much so that he had reservations about leaving when, you know, when Vince came calling. Yes. Because uh, the way the AWA worked... Guys really only worked a dozen or so dates per month, and mm-hmm. uh, the pay was pretty good. So right, right. you know, you got you got paid well, and you had basically half the month to do something else. I don't know if he would you'd be able to take bookings elsewhere. Yeah, it was like I said, like I was saying when I was talking about Bachwinkle, where Vern would guys know, especially top guys. Vern could Vern could take guys that had a name like a Stevens or a Bachwinkle and book them out to other guys on day if they wanted them, because mm-hmm. Vern had a much lighter schedule than others. I mean. You know, like we said, here places like Tennessee, the Carolinas, uh, Dallas, you were literally wrestling every night, seven nights a week. So, wrestling five, five four or five nights a week is a, was a, a blessing <laughs> that you got when you were up up there in Minneapolis. Also, my understanding is Heenan was making pretty pretty good money in AW mm-hmm. because Vern did look at him as being one of the top heels because he was there with Bachwinkle and Stevens for for all the programs so yeah i mean if you if you know Vern and his thought process and and what he thought of nick bockwinkle the fact that he got put with bockwinkle should tell you the high esteem that he held bobby heenan in that that's mm-hmm. no questions asked 
But fall of 1984, uh, Heenan makes the jump to, to WWF. And it's also worth mentioning, and this is not calling Vince McMahon a monster or anything like that. I, I don't think Vince McMahon's a monster. I mean, he, I think he's ruthless. That's not an insult. No, but, you're saying he's a businessman. That's what you're saying. Right. Uh, Vince would be taking that extra step and allegedly paying guys more money to jump right away. Because back then, kind of like how the business world is, you give notice before yes. you leave. And Vince was paying people extra, allegedly, to just jump outright. Which, of course, really shafts AWA because now all of a sudden they're in the middle of the program that, that they can't complete because... One of the main player, the main players are all of a sudden gone. Right, and once again, from a logistical standpoint, let's step back in time and, and let me explain this to our listeners a little bit more to to really emphasize what you're saying. You have to understand how the business was structured in this this point. We've we've talked about it a lot throughout all our episodes because this is classic wrestling memories. The revenue that was generated at that time period was not off of ad revenues from television contracts. Was not off pay per view because pay per view didn't exist. Your television, you were you were probably selling the TV to the local market to look for them to be able to sell ads during, you know, or you were giving it away for free, one of the two, and say just put this on on your television, and or, or, or it wasn't a lot of money. The revenue that was being generated was off of live gates, mm-hmm. the television show, which were only an hour long, unless you were in Memphis where it was ninety minutes. Those television shows were essentially infomercials that were set up to get people to come to the live shows, and that's where you established your angles. That's why they were all squash matches. And that's where you saw guys like Bobby Heenan cut these great promos that made you say, I'm going to go pay my money to watch that little son of a gun get his butt whooped, you know? And, um, or I'm going to go, you know, see this guy kick that dude's butt. So when you make a guy jump, so because of that, you did, you didn't do live TV like they do now with Raw or even in the 90s with Nitro and Raw. It was taped and you often had anywhere from two to six weeks of, of television quote unquote in the can, meaning it was, you know, the old tin cans that you know real to real bicycle reels used to come in. And this is what you're distributing to all your syndicated markets across your territory every week to play in a sequential order. Every once in a while you would have a special one that was an evergreen one or it didn't matter in case things screwed up. Because that would happen on very rare occasions where you know, the UPS man didn't get it to a farther out market your territory or whatever and they'd have one of those sit they could play. So when you understand that, when a guy leaves right away, now your TV's shot for six weeks. You screwed every you've thrown a monkey wrench into the and that is why the industry standard, or at least what was considered professional, which is I think what you're getting to with Bobby, and I'll let you finish explaining that, was you you gave at least four you would go to a promoter and say, Look, I've I've been offered this much by another promoter. Sometimes it was I'm just burned out in this territory. Can you help me get booked elsewhere? Sometimes it's a promoter saying, hey, you need to go away so they can they can miss you and then we'll bring you back later on. Mm-hmm. But however, whatever the means were for you leaving, you always had a, a three to six week buffer that you worked out those dates so that they had time to get you into another TV taping and explain to their television audience, which essentially was their live audience, but just at the buildings, not on television, why this person is no longer there. When you have a guy who's as over as a heel as Bobby the Brain Heenan, he himself personally and the promoter are leaving money on the table if he leaves to go somewhere else without there being an, an angle that you run on TV and then do three weeks of, of house shows for live crowd to come see that. You know, whether it's, you know, the weasel suit thing or maybe it's a big blow off to at, at your biggest town with a hair shave, you know, a head shaving match, something like that. That's what you do when a guy leaves. 
and you're losing, you're, you're leaving money on the table when you don't give yourself time to do that. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to explain that because I don't know if a lot of our listeners, uh, we've talked about it a lot, but they need to think about this because it is, it is in that sense, an aspect, the business is completely different than today, which is why what I think you're going to talk about is so important, but I'll, I'll leave it to what you were getting ready to say. I know where you were going right. with that. Right now, now it's, uh, everything's all in, in, in contracts, but mm-hmm. what I was going to say now, now that you've, you've explained all that is Heenan did not take that extra money to, to jump right away. He actually did stay for those few weeks and worked out an angle where he got like indefinitely suspended or something to that, <laughs> that effect because he provoked, uh, uh, he, 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 it's like he started a fight with, with one of the top babyface tag teams. I don't think it was the high flyers. I think it was, no, uh, my, I think it might've been one of the road warriors. It was, um, it wasn't a crusher bruise. I can't think of it right now. Doesn't matter. No. Yeah. But once again, he, he worked out his dates, like you said. So right. Vern had time, you know, when he went to Vern, and my understanding was he went to Vern and said, look, this is what Vince is offering me. This is my understanding. I want to stay with you. Can you match this? And Vern was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when he said, well, then I want to give you my notice. That that meant a lot to Vern because so many guys had jumped, like Hogan, you know, and left him high and dry with what we're talking about. Uh, you know, a month's worth of television in the can, and now that guy's gone. So – Back to my original point, Vern's like, I'm going to lose him. I might well, I might well monetize this, and he monetized it the way you explained. Let's create an angle. We can get it on television, and people will pay to come see, you know, Bobby get his comeuppance. And then that what a heel's supposed to do, right? And uh, a quick Wikipedia check. Uh, it was the fabulous ones. Mm, I got you, Steve Kerr and Stan Lane. Mm. That's right. So uh, one of the one of the few times they weren't they weren't in Florida or Memphis, <laughs> <laughs> right? But anyway. Fall of 84, Heenan makes the jump to WWF, World Wrestling Federation at the time. And on another trivial note, uh, Vince was actually going to pair Bobby with Jesse the Body Ventura uh, as an act. But Jesse developed those blood clots and had to retire from in-ring, so they put him with uh, Big John Studd. Right. And And, and I think at this time point, you know, we're talking about right, right, right after Vince had bought the company from his father and, and went national. And, and and for the record, ladies and gentlemen, that was our original plan to record night. We were going to talk about the, the creation of the WWF and Vince's father breaking away the NWA. But when unfortunately when Bobby passed, we switched to this. But that will be coming to a podcast near you soon. We will be we will we will be discussing that in long form. The creation of the Capital Sports, you know, WWF. But I digress. Um, when 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 Vince was going national. I think he about that time he I don't know why but it, it hadn't Ernie Roth left I mean he had, for years Vince's dad had that holy that what they called the, the unholy trinity of right. of managers which was the Grand Wizard Ernie Roth Captain Lou Albano and um um who who's the third one I just went blank oh Freddie Blassie classy Freddie Blassie and classy Freddie Blassie was still with the country but I think I think Ernie Roth had left at that point and maybe that was kind of uh, what Bob, and, yeah, I think he did, and he may have even passed by this time because he right. he passed like right around the Hulkamania uh, explosion. Right, right, right. So I think that that was kind of Vince's. I, I'm I'm gonna be speaking completely out my out my butt here, but my my thought as a fan and a knowledgeable fan at the time was that was essentially what Bobby was brought in to do was to be that third cog in that. And then and then of course 
Captain Lou turned babyface because of the Cindy Lauper thing and everything got changed. But I think that was originally Vince's plan to keep going with what his dad had. And, and Bobby was going to be one of these three evil managers, you know, that all the heels have managed. Because I think Ernie Roth was, Grand Wizard was Jesse's manager for a long time, wasn't he? Uh, that I'm not sure because shortly before this, Jesse was in AWA with uh, Adrian Adonis. He, you know what? Jesse might have been with might have been with Classy Freddie Blassie. I could be wrong. Yeah, he was. You're right. I forgot he was. He was with, and it wasn't long after that. Adrian left and went back to New York and tagged with Dick Murdoch, and they were the tag champs for Vince. Yes, Dick Murdoch had a, had a successful run in the WWF. I know a lot of our fans didn't know that either. They think of him as pretty much a Southern based wrestler, but no, Dick Murdoch had a very successful run in New York. But anyway, I digress. So, so they paired him with uh, Big John Studd, and these are really the years I think Bobby Heenan's probably going to uh, be best remembered for. Well, it's, it's definitely when he was exposed to a na- because of Vince's television to a national audience outside of magazines. And I think for our listenership, that's probably around most of the time most of them started watching wrestling too. So right, yeah, right. I mean, e- even I had seen a few matches here and there when I was at, in sleepovers and junior high school and such, you know, because I, I did see the Andre Hogan match where they did, they did the, uh, the dual ref, the, the, uh, right. The, the switch with the Hebner twins and the evil twin and all that stuff. Yes, yes, yes. I did see that. Cause it was, it was on primetime broadcast TV. So I was actually able to watch it for, and for my money, that is still one of the greatest wrestling angles ever, ever, ever run. That was, that was an awesome angle. And Bobby was right in the middle of it, but you know, mm-hmm. cause if you remember the whole excuse was they, nobody, cause this once again, it's before the internet. Nobody knew that the Heb that one of the Hebners was actually a ref down here in the Carolinas for the Crockett's. And so when he left and went up there, of course they looked like they're identical twins. But the the storyline angle that for Vince explained was Bobby Heenan and all his money had paid a plastic surgeon to make the other guy look like that. Yeah, I think Bobby and uh DiBiase were were in cahoots because this is right about right, the time right, that exactly, exactly, exactly. But but you're right, that's when I think fans will remember Bobby starting like a you know, um, my, one of my first memories of Bobby Heenan as a fan, because, well, we might have some listeners that are around my age or a little older that grew up in, you know, the upper Midwest. And so they might remember Bobby from the AWA, you know, but my first memory is the first WrestleMania when he was with John Studd, where, you know, Studd wrestled, wrestled Andre. And I think it was like a $10,000 body slam challenge. Right. Bobby's gimmick was he was carrying around $10,000 of cash in that WWF duffel bag. And was going to give and and even though they cheated and and it, it you know John Studd I think officially won or didn't win I can't remember what happened I remember I just remember the visual of of, of Andre grabbing the duffel bag from Bobby and then literally throwing the cash to the crowd there in Madison Square Garden you know and it's raining money and Bobby grabbed the bag and hugged it like it was his own like it was his only child and ran to the back yeah, like, awesome. like it's my precious <laughs> yeah, it was awesome and that's that once again, that's Bobby Heenan at his absolute finest he could, the the physicality that he could do and and the body language and expressions that's that's those little things you can't teach and he just was masterful at them I think the argument could be made that in 1986 through approximately 1988, really kind of leading up to that WrestleMania four, uh, the tournament tur- tournament. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually one of my favorite WrestleManias, but that's just because it's one of the first WrestleManias I saw, but it didn't have anything to do with Savage went over in the tournament. Did it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, big surprise. I, I like the WrestleManias <laughs> where Savage wins, but, but yeah, even, even the Macho King. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> but for WrestleManias two through four, 
I think the argument could be made that it wasn't King Kong Bundy or Andre the Giant that were necessarily the top heels in that time frame. I think I think the argument could be made that the top heel in the WWF was Bobby Heenan. You know, I agree. He I kept totally sending agree. the monsters after Hulk Hogan, and Hulk Hogan was being the Dragon Slayer. Right. Uh, of course, by this point, Jim Mouth the House, South Jimmy Hart was in the WWF, but we talked about in Memphis that was kind of Jimmy Hart's spot there, and I. And, and it was kind of the same thing that that he had already done the AWA. So that was those were two you know legendary managers that had run that kind of gimmick before in other territories, and Vince just did it again. And Bobby was the top heel because if you go back and look, it wasn't really yes, Andre meant something special because he had been such an attraction and he turned heel for the first time. But outside of Andre, every major opponent that Hogan had for a three year run there wasn't Bobby the Brain guy, and it was like. It wasn't that the guys were out to get Hogan. It was like your like that promo you played at the top of the show, Seth. Mm-hmm. It was Bobby the Brain was out to get Hulk Hogan, <laughs> and, and and you know and and that went back to the AWA days, you know, because he of course was managing Nick Bockwinkle as part of the Heenan family when you know the incredible Hulk Hogan was coming up as as a babyface and Hulkamania was really starting. And I know a lot of fans don't know that either. Hulkamania actually started in the AWA. It did not start in the WWF. Um, That's true. So that was just a continuation of something they had done in Minneapolis already. It just had, you know, he just had the different protege or, or, or guy under his tutelage. And, you know, Hogan, though they were cliched, Hogan was a great promo. Once again, Hogan's promos fit his character. You need somebody strong to cut a promo against that type of promo. Well, Bobby Heenan's that guy. And, the promos where he would talk about it, it was his like the one like that one you played at the top of the show. His lifelong dream was to get to end Hulkamania and get the guy out of the business. You believed it. I mean, yeah, we were all marks when we were teenagers, but you believed it, didn't you? Said that this was really mm-hmm. this guy's goal to get Hulk Hogan out of wrestling. Uh, there was no equivocation about it. It's what I said before when we did our heel one hundred and one episode, and I, I say it really anytime I start talking about Bobby is yes, he said funny stuff, and yes, he had the great one-liners, but when it came to that go-home sell, that's when Bobby would cut that scathing, venom-laced promo that just cuts into the baby face in, in a way that reminds you that this is the bad guy. Because one of those uh, arts of the promo that Bobby knew very well, and is what he had actually said in some of the later shoot interviews that he did, about playing to his opponent's strengths when when cutting the promo. Because you notice, I don't think Bobby Heenan, in, in all the promos that he cut about Hogan that made you hate him, I don't think he ever once called Hulk Hogan bald. No. 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 Here, it, okay, we've talked about this before uh, on A1 and a little bit here on Classic Wrestling Memories. Um, this applies to Bobby. It applies to a lot of guys, but it also applies to Bobby. Uh, one of the things I hate in promos and I was never a great promo, but I was a good promo. Um, you, and I try to tell guys this when they start and I said, well, what do you think of my promo? Well, it was great until you started cutting down your opponent. Well, that's my job, isn't it? So when you beat him, who did you beat? Or when he beat you, who did you get beat by? There's just certain things you should never go there about the guy you're in a program with because it's, it's, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're making it harder for you. You're, and it's a, it's a it's a tough thing to put over your opponent and at the same time talk smack about him. And, but Bobby was great at that, you know. Right. 
like you said, he never talked about Hogan being bald ever, ever. He talked, I mean, in the way, because Bobby was so good with his wit and his sarcasm, he would be doing it. And when you look back at it now and break down the promo, you realize what he was doing when he would say, yeah, you've got the huge muscles, Hogan. And this, he's actually putting Hogan over by saying those type things. You know, it's just, he's saying it in the Bobby Heenan way. And you're like, well, this guy just shut up. But at the whole time, he's essentially putting Hogan over. You know, when he's, when he's talking about how strong he is and how hard he works and how big his muscles are, how long he's had the belt. He's reminding you as a fan of all the reasons that Hulk Hogan's over, isn't he? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, he's definitely a guy that when I go over promo with guys I train, he's one of those guys I, I pop a tape in and go, let's watch a few promos here by a master, you know? So I don't know if that, that, that says anything to fans out there, but for what it's worth, you know, he's on my very short list of guys promos. I bet guys I make watch promos of to go, this is how you cut a promo, you know? During his run in the World Wrestling Federation at several incarnations of the Heenan family, um, now I'm doing this in approximate order of entry, mm-hmm. and let's see how many stinkers we have in here and how many all-time greats we have here. Uh, Big John Studd, Ken Patera, mm-hmm. a- Adrian Adonis, mm-hmm. The Missing Link, mm-hmm. King Kong Bundy, mm-hmm. Harley Race, mm-hmm. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, mm-hmm. Hercules. Hercules Hernandez. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Probably most famously, Andre the Giant, as we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Islanders, Haku and Tama. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rick Rude, the the brain busters of Aaron Anderson and Tully Blanchard. Mm -hmm. Terry Taylor is the Red Rooster. (laughs) Steve Lombardi is the Brooklyn Brawler. Uh, A man you knew a bit, uh, or still still do, do, I guess, uh, the Barbarian. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig. So, I mean, look at the ratio of great talent in there. I mean, there, there might there, there's a couple guys in there like... Uh, Missing Link. Yeah, Missing Link or Tama, the, the other guy in the Islanders. But those guys were all still... I mean, they were solid mid-card guys that drew money in this business. But, I mean, when you start throwing around the Rick Rudes and the Harley Races and the Kurt Hennings, and the, you know, those, are, those are Hall of Famers. You know, Andre, Big John Studd, King Kong Bundy. These are these are heavy heavy hitters. So you know, and and the whole Red Rooster and, and and Steve Lombardi era was just an attempt for Vince to get guys over. You know, I have mixed emotions on the whole Red Rooster thing, whether it was a, whether it was a rib or not. I I know Terry Taylor personally feels that it was a rib, but um, you know, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I do know that there were some guys. Rude being one of them. And once again, I don't want to speak ill of the dead because unfortunately, you know, Rick Rude's no longer with us either. Some guys were, because Bobby was so good, he was so over, kind of thought maybe he was stealing their heat. But I know, uh, based on several guys' firsthand accounts, Bobby was very mindful of that and did not want to steal heat from his guys. He understood his job was to get heat for his guys and get them over, not to be the star. It was just, you know, we just sit there and mention he was the top heel. It wasn't because that was because Bobby was going out there to do it. You know, that wasn't um, that wasn't what his attempt was. Bobby understood the psychology and understood he was to be, like you said, a crouton, that that sizzle to the steak, a crouton on the salad. And I think Bobby approached that. It's just, he was so damn good. It was hard for him not to stand out. You know, what's that right. old saying? It's hard, sort of like an eagle when you're surrounded by a bunch of turkeys. Well, sometimes Bobby was that eagle that was surrounded by turkeys through no fault of his own. So, you know, that's not his fault. That's that's Bobby just doing what the, the office tells him to do. 
And once again, that makes him a great employee, doesn't it? Yes. And and I think Bobby's side of it is he's like, well, the more heat I get, the more heat, heat you get, you know? Exactly. Exactly. But I think if you listen to Bobby's promos, not only does he do that thing I talked about, that hard thing of putting the other guy you're over, you're working over at the same time promoting the angle, Bobby would defer and talk about, no, I can listen to a Bobby, Pro, Bobby Heenan promo when he would talk about a Rick Rude or a look at this man. And he would sing all the praises of his guy, you know? Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, that to me, that's, and I hate to say this, that's the boys being the boys. We all have very fragile egos. You've heard me say that a million times, right? Mm-hmm. We can be, a little, we can be all be a little touchy. And I think that's sadly what some of that was. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I guarantee you those guys <clears throat> say that. But if it was ever suggestible, I will just take Bobby away from you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I can guarantee you that's how that went down. <laughs> I've been privy to similar discussions like that. You know, not at a smaller scale, an independent promotion where a really good manager was with a, with, with one of the top heels, and the heels felt like that manager because he was so over was taking heat away from him. And the promoter flatly said, "Well, I'll just put it with some, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. We got good chemistry. We're in the middle of this thing. That's just that's how we wrestlers are. We apologize." <laughs> <laughs> but according to a documentary that is on the WWE Network, I think it was originally released in 2010. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was on Netflix for a while, but it, it, it is, I can confirm because I watched it earlier today uh, as of this recording for prep. There's a documentary on Bobby on the WWE Network uh, that it's in their Beyond the Ring series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but according to this documentary, cause, just because I haven't seen it anywhere else, uh, supposedly he left WWE to pursue a career doing commercials, which yes. you know, would have been a, a pretty interesting thing. But then WCW came knocking with a big money offer and they gave him dates you know they he basically only did announcing we're really not going to talk his wcw run much unless i mean unless you really really want to but i'm guessing you don't well, we'll talk we'll talk a little bit but yeah. i mean as he transitioned out of the manage, managerial stuff and he transitioned to the other thing i think our, our listeners probably most remember is his time as an announcer you know and he was of course paired with everybody but most famously with gorilla monsoon on primetime wrestling and on wrestling challenge was it was a prime time he was on? Or was it wrestling? Remember, they had one announced team was on one show and another. One was Vince and, and Jesse, and the other was was Bobby and, and Gorilla. Which one was which? You're the WWF guy. Yeah, you know, I think. Uh, I well, I know they did prime time wrestling for a while, and mm-hmm. Bobby and Heenan had his own talk show right. on there too. Right, and I think that was. I'm basing this on what Bruce Pritchard has said on his podcast, talking about Bobby. And he would have known because he was, you know, in the inner circle at that time. That was Vince's attempt to help Bobby transition away from managing and just plain announcing. Every everybody who's ever had any interaction with Bobby Heenan can tell you how quick witted and funny the guy is. I mean, if the guy had wanted to be a stand up comic, he would have been a successful stand up comic. Um, I feel that he. I know the in the brief obituary David Meltzer wrote last night. He compared him to Ted Knight, which I think is a good comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and I get that reference. I'm old enough to understand that. Right. Well, anybody who's seen Caddyshack <laughs> gets that reference. And <laughs> yeah. felt, and, and Dave Dave said he personally felt that Bobby had the type of comedy timing to have gotten to a level of a Ted Knight. And I have no, I can't, I can't disagree with Dave on that one. You know, I have to, I have to agree with him. But you know, it just, I think that that time period. You know, Piper was the only guy that had any kind of success as a wrestler outside of wrestling. I mean, Terry Funk had had a little 
Uh, Andre had just the one, you know, the one movie, Princess Bride. Hogan was our example of what, you know, wrestlers trying to go into regular entertainment was, and that wasn't good. No offense to Hulk Hogan. I mean, right. Hulk Hogan is not a great actor, but he wasn't, the whole, no holds bar was not a great script either. So, I mean, he didn't have a lot to work with, you know? Um, right. So, anyway, I think that was Vince because he liked Bobby so much, and that area you're talking about uh, was an attempt for that. But I think that Bobby always kind of wanted to do comedy, uh, just my personal opinion. And I, I wish he had had more of a chance. But at the same time, we go all the way back to the beginning of this episode. He said when he was a kid and he saw it for the first time, he was hooked. Bobby Heenan was wrestling, you know. So I think he was going to find it hard for him to leave, too. I think when you have to, to make it in this business at any level, from the small le- level of success I had to someone of a Bobby the Brain Heenan, you have to have a massive passion. And it's a burning type passion that doesn't ever get fully extinguished. So I think had that happened, Bobby would have eventually found his way back to the business. It just is what it is. But yeah. in that time period, um, I, you know me. I'm a homer for the Carolinas, so I love Bob Cottle. Love Gordon Soley. Love Lance Russell. The announced team, not individual announcer, but the announced team of Bobby the Brain Heenan and, and Gorilla Monsoon might be the best announced team. In my opinion, probably even better than JR and Lawler. I know I'm going to catch some heat for that, but I, I, the chemistry those two had was awesome. What are your re- recollections of them as an announced team? That was right before you started watching, wasn't it? it they, they were still broadcasting for a while. I think I think they did some of the uh, Royal Rumbles or WrestleManias or something like that. Yeah. And, I, and I think it was WWF Superstars was Vince and Jesse and, and later, uh, Vince and, and Piper, and I think mm-hmm. I think it was Wrestling Challenge was Gorilla and and Bobby. But one yeah. of my favorite exchanges was when there's interference going on in the match, and uh, Gorilla's complaining about the interference, uh, mm-hmm. and Bobby goes, "I don't know, my monitor keeps kicking in and out here. What's going on? I'm going to start <laughs> kicking you in and out here right in a minute." <laughs> yeah, I remember they did. They even did that one when Undertaker beat Hogan at that that Survivor Series first. Title run uh, taker had <laughs> that that line never got old. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and 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 Gorilla and him just did the t- and it was it was it was so believable and you know Myers says they really were friends outside of the business. They they really enjoyed each other's company. Their their wives were friends, you know. So it was it was sad to see the breakup, but but I loved how when they Bobby did leave, they did the spot where Gorilla was the one who physically threw him out of the building. Remember? Mm-hmm. That was well, and, and you know we hate vignettes. We both have talked about that. But the vignettes that Bobby and Gorilla did were kind of cool because they weren't meant to be wrestling vignettes. They were meant to be comedy vignettes, and you knew that. You know, right, right. We were talking off mic in our show prep that uh, the shows leading up to WrestleMania four. I was I was listening to Brian and Vinny review them on the on Wrestling Observer, and that they were at one of the Trump casinos in Atlantic City and Gorilla's walking around like he owns the place and everybody everybody loves him and then you told me no no that's that's a shoot <laughs> let's let's put it this way folks Gorilla Monsoon kind of had a problem uh you know walking past the the uh, roulette or the blackjack table and not putting a few chips down if you know what i mean not that he had a, a addiction or anything but he he was well known enough in Atlantic City and Vegas that all the major casinos pit bosses knew who he was and not because he was a famous pro wrestler. Oh, Mr. Monsoon, nice to see you, sir. Will you well let's let comp you the, the you know the presidential suite, that kind of treatment. I mean, this is a well known 
you know, thing in wrestling. No, we're talking about Bobby, but I mean, you can't really talk about Bobby without talking about Gorilla, can you? <laughs> gorilla, would, gorilla would literally walk around with about seven to 12 grand in cash at all times. And that was part of the reason why was he liked to gamble. But also guys would ask him, uh, why are you carrying around that kind of money? Well, I might want to buy something. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, let's be honest. Who's going to who's going to try to stick up or pickpocket Gorilla Monsoon? Yeah, <laughs> the dude at his peak weighed like four forty. You know? Yeah, I mean, even, even when he lost weight at the end of his life, Gorilla was still a solid what two ninety three hundred pound man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so I I wasn't gonna try it. No, 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 sir. I remind you once again of a, of, a, of a monsoon story I told before when all the kerfluffle over Vince buying the you know buying the, the Georgia Championship Wrestling time slot and coming down and sticking an olive branch out to Ole Anderson who was known to be a tough guy, you know, about, I need you, Ole, please come with me. And Ole saying some very offensive things to Vince and to Linda. The next time they went down to Georgia, Vince took Gorilla with him to keep Ole in check, and Ole was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> no offense, Ole. I love Ole. You know what I mean? I love Ole. He's a curmudgeonly old son of a bitch. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and he's a grumpy old man. But if you can't learn something from that guy, and he was a legit tough guy. Remember, this is a guy who got cut literally from shoulder to, to belly here in Greenville and got like a hundred and something odd stitches and was went, wrestled the next night. And he ran from Gorilla Monsoon. So that's all I'm going to say about <laughs> Gorilla Monsoon. <laughs> oh, anyway, that's probably a behind other than Blackjack Mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a reason Oli wasn't in uh, the group for the uh, Horseman yeah. Hall of Fame induction. but. Yeah, there's just, uh, there's a, unfortunately, and I know time heals all wounds. Unfortunately, there's a lot of, of, of really hurt feelings on a lot of fronts there with Ole. And it's sad because if you ask me as a person, and we're getting off Bobby Heenan, but, you know, this is classic wrestling memories and this is classic wrestling. For someone who was a fan in the Carolinas during the rise and the heyday of the Horseman, my favorite incarnation of the Horseman was the first. That was Ole Tully. Arn, Rick, and JJ, and Baby Doll. Oh, at that point, Baby Doll had that was Ole. Baby Doll came back later. She was a baby face with Dusty at the time. Um, yeah, Ole Anderson was believable, could work, and could talk. And you hated him. And uh, anyway, but yeah, anyway, back to Bobby Heenan. <laughs> yeah. you, you just triggered a memory, didn't uh, Bobby have a run in Georgia for a while for a couple of months? Not that I remember. But I watched more Mid Atlantic than I did Georgia Championship. I got more Georgia Championship uh, when I would go visit my aunt in Atlanta because that was their territory. Or occasionally, uh, we went, went times with or without without um, cable. And when we had cable, we would get TBS. So I would get Georgia Championship because people need to understand before Crockett bought it after the whole Vince thing. What you saw at six oh five was essentially Georgia Championship Wrestling. It was not, <laughs> and that was a big thing. Was like people would when cable first started, they would see a Tommy Wildfire Rich or people like that or the Andersons in say L.A. Or when were we gonna get to see them? And they didn't understand the territorial system. <laughs> You're not gonna see them in L.A. because they don't work for the LaBelles. They work for 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 Gunkel and Barnett here <laughs> here in Atlanta. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> But he might have. You might have. You know, I mean, I don't know. There was a time there after the Bachwinkle, Stephen, the whole that first Heenan family you were talking about in the late 70s. Um, 
I always assumed he was with the AWA, but he could have gone elsewhere before he went back to the AWA and then eventually Vince. You know, I don't know. That that 80 to 83 period is kind of fuzzy for me on Bobby. You follow what I'm saying? Right, right. Uh, but uh, getting back to his transition into WCW, yeah, he left WWE to uh, pursue doing commercials. Uh, WCW had a big money offer, and they were only really offering him the, the, the TV dates. So that gave him uh, a lot of time to spend with his family. And I think that about this time, his daughter was, I think, junior high or teenage years. So that's really right, right. the time, well, well, you would know this more than I would, that's really kind of some of the times you really treasure with family is that, you know, when, when, when the kids are coming of age, so to speak. Yeah. Sadly, uh, a lot of guys in the business, we, uh, we miss the younger years and we don't start slowing down our bookings or just flat out leave the business until either they're already out of school or they're at that time period you're talking about. And a lot of guys, and Bobby was one of them that had gotten enough credibility in the business. He could cut a deal like that to where he could be home for the, you know, the, the, the softball games and the football games and the band concerts that you missed when they were young kids because you were on the road, you know? Right, right. All, all he really had to worry about as an announcer was uh, the, the live TVs, you know, the, the Sundays and uh, when then when Nitro came along Mondays. Or, and I can't know, remember, I, and he, just, did, he, did, he, did you do Saturday night? I can't remember. But Saturday night was taped, by the way. Right, or, right. Uh, so, so that's the type of thing. They probably taped a couple shows in one night, you know, uh, but it is worth noting uh, regarding his WWE and WCW runs. Uh, he was on the inaugural Monday Night Raw. I don't think he broadcasted on it, but he did make an appearance. Uh, but he was also on the inaugural Monday Nitro. Wasn't that the one where the, he eventually got gone? Isn't that the, the angle I'm talking about? Wasn't that the first Raw? Where no, no. It, it was Raw's first year. But he was originally, I think, being a character, they had the comic or whoever. Oh, that's right. I remember him trying to get in the. I remember that one spot where he was trying to get into the building, and they had this was Sean Mooney was with the company, and he would try to sneak in. He had him dressed in drag, and he dressed like a Hasidic <laughs> Jew rabbi and all that stuff. Right, I think that <laughs> may have been great, the early great episodes. Bobby, yeah. Great Bobby Heenan, that, that's classic Bobby Heenan. That comedy, you know, and and, right. and like you said before, when we talked about great healing. Bobby was that guy who could give you all that comedy we talked about, but then just like you know, a snap of a finger, he could turn it into that that money promo. You know, and and that's a that's a, a lost art too for sure. But I still remember him showing up, making his debut in WCW. I think it was at a Clash of the Champions because mm-hmm. uh, Gene had actually gotten hired uh, a few months before, right? And so Gene's like, I can't believe this, Bobby. Why why do you keep following me around? Because of course they were in the right. AWA together. And then, then they were in the WWF. Then they then. then Gene was in the WWF, got followed by Bobby Heenan, and then the same thing happened. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, my, my understanding was, first it was Flair, and then once Hogan got in the fold, it was Hogan and Flair uh, who facilitated a lot of those hires. When, you know, Eric Bischoff got that, that moniker, ATM Eric, because he finally got Ted to loosen the purse strings. And that was both Hogan and Flair's point, was if you want to compete with Vince, you need to get some faces on here that people associate with Vince and it was guys who were talented like Bobby Heenan and like Gene Okerlund, you know, and, um, all due respect to Tony Schiavone, who of course was still a commentator at the time for WCW and is as synonymous with nitro as Bobby is. There was a credibility factor on a national scale when Bobby Heenan and Gene Okerlund came to WCW. Don't you think? Oh yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I, I I remember missing a few weeks because of uh, 
I think I did, we had our cable was out or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm like, all of a sudden, holy, holy crap, Mean Gene's here. And I think this may have even been before. No, I think, I think Hogan may, may have shown up. They all, they all came to WCW around that mid-1994 time. And this is just going from memory. This is just going by, by being a fan at the time. But there, there was that big transition in, in 94 that you know, kind of led to the Nitro era. Where yeah, they did hire some pretty big names from WWE because WWE was going with their youth movement. That's about the time WWE was going with their new generation, and they were running with Lex Luger and Bret Hart, and Sean and Kevin Nash and those guys. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think that that's for, is a good trivia point that he's on the first Raw and the first Nitro. Um, I can't think of any other names offhand that that would apply to. May, maybe some of the wrestlers, but. I'm kind of like Steamboat being on the first Starcade and the first WrestleMania, <laughs> you know. Right. So, right. And Orton too, for for that for that matter. Orton and Steamboat both were. So, um, anyway, yeah, Bobby obviously was not managing at that point. His neck had got. He had had the surgery at that point. Of course, there was that that infamous time. I think it was a clash of the champions when Brian Pillman was doing the loose cannon gimmick. Do you remember that? And yeah, he grabbed and- Bobby and got Bobby dropped an f bomb on live television. Hmm. Um, I, and the thing was, Bobby was so over. My understanding was Bobby didn't get any heat over that, you know, because he came back out and he apologized. And, 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 you know, um, I think even if there was a fine coming from the FCC, he, he told him to take it out of his check. So, you know, right. That, that, that's one of those things. I understand where Bobby's coming from, but that to me is another, you know, another show for another time long form. I'm sure we'll talk about the whole loose cannon persona and Brian Pillman in general, but. That's kind of what happens when you work when you try to work the boys, in my opinion. But uh, we'll talk about that more, like I said, when we talk about Pillman some down the road, because <clears throat> that was Bischoff and Pillman trying to work the boys. Anyway, <laughs> we'll uh, deliver on the dangling of that carry on, on another show. But uh, yeah. anything else about his WCW run that's worth mentioning, or anything else you wanted to talk um, about with Bobby before we wind up? Two things, you know. I've, of course, there's the, the controversial, but I think classy time when when Gorilla passed that he mentioned him on Nitro um, that Shivani got a lot of heat over, and Shivani, to his credit, has tried to explain his side of the story on his podcast, and I will leave that to Tony. He's a grown man, speak for himself. I would suggest you look up the Bobby Heenan episode from Tony Shivani's What Happened When, and you'll get an understanding of that. But um, when Bobby was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, which I think was 2005. Four, I believe you. It's on the network. Uh, They've got all, and this was when they first started actually having the um, award ceremonies, and they weren't as the big or grand a scale as they are now. They would have all the all the all the uh, inductees and their and their inductors on a stage together, and it was more like a like a roast, you know, kind of atmosphere. Bobby Heenan's induction into that Hall of Fame and his acceptance speech is one of the best. It's right up there with Flares and Jake the Snakes, uh, DDP, some of the, the really good ones we've had in the last few years that were just awesome. You know, everything you need to know about Bobby Heenan is in that. That just is. I went back and watched it last night after I heard the news and just like this guy was awesome. This he is going to be so sorely missed and seeing him the last few years at, um, meet and greets and these fans was just it was so sad i felt bad for him and for the fans to have to see bobby had that same surgery that of course another fellow chicago person and rock ebert had you know where they essentially remove the bottom half of your jaw you know you look you have half a face 
So it didn't even look like Bobby anymore, you know, and, and how sad is it and ironic that a guy who made his money with his gift for gab had that taken away from him at the end. That's just so tragic. Um, right. And, and but, since he couldn't talk, I mean, that means he couldn't do things like talk to his own daughter or his own granddaughter. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, on a personal note, um, you know, obviously we want to send our condolences, but especially to, to his wife, Cindy and his daughter, Jessica, uh, he loved both of them dearly. Um, and that's coming from a lot of guys in the business. Bobby Heenan married Cindy early on. I want to say in the late sixties and she stayed with him till he died. Mm -hmm. That's not yeah. only that's, that's unusual by any standards. That's extremely unusual in the wrestling business. That right there tells me a lot. I need to know about the man, you know? Uh, that he was in this, and, and from my understanding, Bobby had no problem going out with the boys and having a good time like we do, but he always knew his, his boundaries and he kept them. And I think the fact that him and Cindy were together all the way to the end probably speaks to that and why. Um, I can't say that. I, I, uh, Punky Ricky Morton jokingly told me one time, kid, you ain't truly a wrestler until you've had, you've been divorced. Had your car break down in the middle of nowhere on the way to a show and spent a night in the jail after after a show. Unfortunately, I can I can check off all three of those boxes. Uh, Bobby Heenan was not one of those, though, and respect to him as a man for that. I, too, uh, everybody here at A1-Wrestling.com and ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, we want to extend our deepest condolences, thoughts, prayers to the Heenan family uh, in this time. But uh, honestly, I don't think Bobby would want us to be sad. At a time like this, I, I think he'd want us to probably have a good time and revel in some of the uh, evil things that that he said and did back back in the past. And uh, I'm gonna we started out the show with a promo, so I think we're gonna end it with a promo here. And Gene, Gene Okerlund's also part of this. This is a 1985 promo that uh, Bobby Heenan cut about a handicap tag match that he was having in Oakland, California. I've got to confront you. I know in the absence of John Studd and King Kong Bundy, how do you get yourself in this kind of a mess? A handicap match with Hillbilly Jim and Andre the Giant. Two men facing three. Big John Studd, King Kong Bundy, and yourself. You aren't. Well, nervous, aren't you? No, I'm not nervous. I just want to collect my thoughts and make sure everything I say is understood properly. Because it's obvious the World Wrestling Federation here doesn't listen to me, and they don't care about me. Yes, I am a gifted athlete and a wrestler, but I don't particularly care to wrestle. And they know that. The whole thing is between Andre and the Hellbilly and Stunt and Bundy. And just because some goon at seven foot four and 500 pounds and some dumb hick from Mud Lick put their two heads together with an IQ of 10, they want a, me in the ring. They want to get their hands on Stud. They want to pick up that money for a slam. They want to get rid of Bundy because they're jealous of his size and massiveness. And they want to get rid of me because they're jealous of me. My whole life, everybody's been jealous of me. Everybody's been worried about me my whole life. You're They've paranoid. done this to me. They've done this to me. Don't you call me Weasel either, pal. No, I didn't Don't you, say, you I said, said you're paranoid. It. No, you called me Weasel and I heard you. I, I said you're you, trying to weasel no, out of this no, match. No, no, I didn't try to weasel out. I just don't want to have anything to do with this match. I want to sit down in that chair. I want to guide my men. I don't want to get in there. I don't want some guy seven foot four putting his dirty, filthy hands on me. I don't want some hillbilly putting his dirty farm hands on me. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And you think it's a handicap because there's two of you against three of us. It's a handicap in your part. Because, Andrew, you were carried out of the Maple Leaf Guards in Toronto. And hillbilly Jim... You thought you stole the Manager of the Year award from me and gave it to Albano, and you didn't, because I'm Manager of the Year. 
And they carried you out of there too after that. They carried out Albano. And I'm going to guarantee you something. Thursday on the 12th of December, they better not bring any ambulances there to the Oakland Coliseum. They better bring some big dumpster trucks where they haul the garbage out. Because that's what they're going to carry Andre out of there with and the hellbilly. Because Stud and I and Bunny are walking out of there. And don't you call me Weasel. Somebody just call me Weasel call here. You, weasel. Somebody's calling me Weasel. Must be from behind there. Fans, go listen in Oakland. I love that. I'm not trying to weasel out of this match. I just want nothing to do with it. <laughs> Classic, man. That's that's awesome. That's that that's a great way to, way to end the show, man. That's wow. So, I uh, want to thank you, folks, for joining us on this. Uh, I don't want to say melancholy because we've we've had a lot of fun, and Bobby had such a great career. And I mean, 73 is a full life in anybody's book. But I do want to thank all you folks for listening. Once again, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, and the social media is Facebook at A1Wrestling, and the Twitter is at A1WPodcast. I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com, and Train, if somebody wants to uh, hit you up with thoughts on Bobby Heenan or thoughts on wrestling in general, uh, where can they get you? Of course, as always, I'm on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. We'll be back next time talking the formation of Capital Wrestling. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we will talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Pedro Morales, you are the World Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Champion. You were Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion. Twice. I'm speaking. You were the Tag Team Champion. But those are all former. Now you're nothing. And when the King gets through with you, you will be less than nothing. Now, Paul Orndorff is not going to conduct an interview. We have a news blackout. A news blackout? Right. He's not going to give you an interview or you people an interview or anybody in the media because he doesn't feel like he has to. And I don't feel like I should let him do it. I know if Hulk Hogan is defending the title against Kamala. Now, Kamala is a big, bad, vicious man. But I'm upset that Kamala gets his hands on Hogan before we do. But no, they throw the junkyard dog in front of us here at the Boston Garden. Why don't you throw Larry Bird in front of us? Why don't you throw the whole Celtics? Why don't you throw everybody and get your hands on here in front of us? No, no, you got the junkyard dog. Guy comes in with 16 feet of chain around his neck. He barks, he growls, the referee backs up. He lets him do whatever he wants. Let me tell you something, junkyard dog. You are in my way. You are in the way of something I dream about. And before this year is over, I want to manage the champion of the world. I want to manage Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And if you think stepping in front of me with that chain is going to do it, you're badly mistaken. Because if we have to take that chain off you, dog, take that chain and drag you around that Boston Garden and housebreak you, we'll do it. Because then we're going to sit at ringside and we're going to watch Kamala do whatever he has to do to the world's champion, Hulk Hogan. And whatever minute piece of you is left, Hogan, that's what I want. That's what Mr. Wonderful wants. 
and that is what we are going to get. Boston Gardens, get ready, because when Orndorff walks out, I want you to stand up and yell, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs>